It was just another ordinary day. There was nothing particularly spectacular about the sunrise. The birds of the air did not uh, sing a new rendition of their favorite song. The sun was just as blistering as it had ever been. The sand was as gritty today as it was yesterday. It was just another ordinary day. Moses was doing today the same thing he had been doing for the last 14,600 days. For the last 40 years, he had been working on the family farm. He was the shepherd of borrowed sheep. He was employed by his father-in-law, Jethro. This was a day that looked like every other day. It was an ordinary day. And yet, it was about to become an extraordinary day. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. That's today we continue our 10-part sermon series on the life of Moses. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Exodus chapter 3, I'll begin reading at verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight while the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because they're slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. Moses has fallen from a great height. For the first 40 years of his life, he was groomed to be a somebody. He was in line to be the next Pharaoh of Egypt. He had an identity crisis. He knew that he was not an Egyptian, and even though he did not live with his Hebrew people, his heart broke for the Hebrew people. One day he went out to see how they were being treated by their Egyptian taskmasters. He saw one particular taskmaster who was so brutally treating an Israelite slave that Moses responded with anger. He had seen enough and he had had enough. He took matters into his own hands. He began to strike that Egyptian taskmaster, and he did not stop. He didn't stop until the man was dead. He buried the evidence in the sand. When this news of a murder got back to Pharaoh, Moses knew he was a marked man. 
So he ran. He went to the only place that he thought that Pharaoh and the army would not follow him. He went to that God-forsaken desert of Midian. There he found favor with one of the priests of Midian. This man named Jethro had seven daughters. He gave one of his daughters to Moses. I can well imagine it's the most beautiful of all the daughters. He gives that daughter to Moses. They marry, settle down, and start a family. For the next 40 years, Moses was a nobody. Nobody knew who he was or where he was or how he was. Moses was a nobody. He had the same job every single day for four decades. He would get the sheep. He would take them out and allow them to graze from one pasture to the next. And because it was a dry, arid desert, literally they would go from one blade of grass to the next blade of grass. Moses had the one profession that every Egyptian despised. No Egyptian wanted to be a shepherd. Now Moses knew that he was not an Egyptian at heart, but still he was raised as an Egyptian. And so he despised his life. He despised his profession. One day, he saw a bush that was on fire. That's not odd. In fact, for a seasoned shepherd like Moses, he had seen this kind of sight numerous times. He's in the desert for crying out loud. Not uncommon for the intense Palestinian sun to ignite a small shrub. Usually the fire is short-lived. It usually just kind of leaves behind a pile of ashes. But this was a strange sight. What was strange about it, you ask? The bush was on fire, but it was not being consumed. It wasn't being burnt up. The fire did not burn out. It kept blazing. It kept blazing. This was a strange phenomenon. And so it caused Moses to stop in his sandals. He went over just to see this strange sight. Why the bush that was on fire wasn't being consumed. And from that vantage point, God realized he had got the attention of Moses. And he spoke to him from the burning bush. This morning, I want to give you three truth statements about God. One of the things I love about God is that he gives us theology that is couched in narrative. What I mean by is this, that God did not give us just a theological textbook. When he gave us the Bible, he gave us a book of stories. And through those stories, he communicates theology. He communicates who he is and how he interacts with his people. He shows us who we are. He shows us who he is. He shows us what he expects of us. And it's all couched in stories. The Bible is 75% narrative. And even the other 25% has a story behind it. Whether it is a poem or a letter, an epistle, or maybe apocalyptic literature. In all of those cases, there's still a story behind the passage. So all the Bible is one big story. It's one gigantic narrative. And God gives us theology in story. And so this morning, I want to pull out three true statements about God that's couched in this story. The first one is this, that God's compassion for you precedes his commands to you. That God's compassion for you precedes his commands to you. Before he tells you what to do, he tells you who you are in his sight. Moses was captured, enamored with this bush that was on fire but not being consumed. When God realized he had captured the attention of the servant, he called him by name. Moses, Moses. And Moses responded, here I am. At no point in the narrative are you given the indication that Moses is scared or Moses is petrified or Moses is alarmed. 
He seems very comfortable throughout this whole story. He's talking to a bush that's on fire, but not being consumed. If you walked out the front door of your house and all of a sudden your landscape in your front yard began to talk to you, you would kind of freak out, wouldn't you? You would think to yourself, what in the world is going on? This is not a normal occurrence. Moses had seen shrubs that were on fire before, but never had any of those bushes or shrubs talked to him in conversation. And none of them had ever identified themselves as God. And God spoke and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses simply said, here I am. He's not alarmed. Why? I think it's in the way in which God speaks to him. Look at the text. It simply says that God called him by name and said, Moses, Moses. It's not that God has a stuttering problem, but God just wanted to get the attention of Moses. Normally, whenever you find a person's name in a double repetition, that is a term of endearment. It's a way for that person to be disarmed. It's a term of endearment that communicates affection and love and value and worth. Let me give you a few examples. When young Samuel was being called into ministry, the Lord said to him, Samuel, Samuel, terms of endearment. It was in the middle of the night. It woke Samuel from his slumber. And he thought to himself, this must be my mentor, Eli. So he goes in and he wakes up his mentor from his midnight slumber and says, sir, what do you want? And Eli says, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. This happens a couple more times. Eventually, the old man realizes, hey, this is God that's calling young Samuel. So he instructs his protege in ministry. He says, next time you hear that voice and recognize that voice, you just simply say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel goes back to bed. And for a third occasion, God speaks to him in a very affectionate way. He says, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel says, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. At no point is Samuel upset. At no point is he alarmed. Why? Because God disarmed him. He quoted his name not once but twice. Samuel, Samuel. You also see this term of endearment and affection when David, the father, learns that his son Absalom had died. And David cries out. And oh, if we could hear how he says what he says. Absalom, Absalom, my dear son, if it had only been I who had died instead of you, you can hear the affection that is oozing and pouring out of the voice of David, even though this is the son of David that is pursuing his father David in order to kill him. Yet in that moment, David's heart still breaks. Oh, my son, Absalom, I wish I would have died instead of you. You hear the affection, don't you? As he repeats his name, not once, but twice. In the New Testament, Jesus is blasted by Martha. Jesus and the boys are in the house. Martha is making all the preparations that just had to be made in order for them to eat a nice meal. And she walks in and she is flabbergasted. She is angry. She is fit to be tied. Why? Because her lazy sister Mary is sitting on her keister at the feet of Jesus. And she's so upset. She goes to Jesus and she demands reprimands him, says, why don't you correct my sister so that she'll spring to her feet, tuck her tail between her legs and sheepishly get into the kitchen and help me. And what does Jesus do? He disarms Martha, doesn't he? It's just a couple of words. Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but one thing is needed. 
Mary has chosen what is better and it shall not be taken away from her. What is Jesus doing? He is communicating his term of endearment to Martha and in the process, he's disarming her. I'll give you one more example. Acts chapter nine. This rebel rouser named Saul is on his way to Damascus. He's breathing out murderous threats against the church. He is public enemy number one. And Jesus shows up and calls him by name. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Yes, it's true that Jesus knocked him off his high horse. Yes, it's true that Jesus blinded him by a bright light. But all in the process, he's communicating a term of endearment. He is disarming this, uh, this, this rebel. And he's saying, listen, I got a task for you, for you are valuable in my sight. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he response who are you lord i am jesus of nazareth in all of these examples we find the double repetition of the name and it is communicated to disarm the person to communicate endearment and love affection value worth that's what god does here moses moses here i am moses you're valuable to me moses i love you Moses, I'm going to use you. But before I tell you what to do, I've got to tell you who you are to me. I wish we could hear the voice of God in this moment. I wish we could hear the tender compassion. I wish we could hear how God addresses Moses. Moses, Moses calls him by name because God's compassion for you always precedes his commands to you. Before he tells you what to do, he tells you who you are. There's somebody in the house who needs to hear that today. Maybe you need to hear that for the very first time. Maybe you just simply need to be reminded of that. That God loves you not because of what you do for him. He simply loves you because he's God and he's compassion. It's not so much that God is loving, even though he is, but the Bible says that God is love. He can't help it. He just is love. Not just that he acts in loving ways, but he is the personification of the definition of love. He is agape love, unconditional love, unmerited love. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. But God just can't help himself. He loves you. There is nothing you can do to make God love you any more than he already does. And that has little to do with the value of you. It has everything to do with the value of God. God says, I love you because I can't help it. It's not that you're just irresistible. It's because I love you. His compassion for you is great. My friends, don't ever get that truth statement reversed. Oh, don't ever think that somehow if I'm obedient to the commands of God, then he will love me. If you think that way, that will become so burdensome that it will break you. You'll be overwhelmed with trying to please God. You'll be overwhelmed trying to earn his love. You'll be overwhelmed trying to receive and merit his mercy. And all the while, God just says to you what he says to Moses. Listen, God's compassion for you always precedes his commands to you. Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. Let me give you a second truth statement about God. Before God tells you where to go, he demonstrates his grace. Before he tells you where to go, he demonstrates his grace. Moses, take off your sandals because the place you're standing is holy ground. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And with this, Moses hid his face because he knew he was standing in the presence of sheer glory and he could not withstand it. In the ancient Near Eastern custom, Whenever a person entered into a house of one who was socially superior 
that individual would always take off his shoes, his sandals. Because he's going into the presence of one who is greater than he is. Moses is standing there. Yes, it's on the backside of Horeb. Yes, it's a seven-day journey into the desert. Yes, it's Mount Sinai. Yes, in the text it's called the mountain of God. Yes, I just simply call it Yahweh's yard. Yes, he's standing there. And even though he's in the dry, arid desert, in the supposedly God-forsaken place of the Midian desert, even there, God is in charge. Even there, God has jurisdiction. Even there, the holiness of God can show up. And wherever God shows up, we have to bow to his supremacy and his sovereignty. Take off your sandals because the place you're standing is holy ground. I want you to know that I am the one true God. I'm the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says in a very gracious way, I have seen the misery of my people. I have heard them crying out. And I'm concerned about them. All those are statements of great grace. I have seen the misery of my people. God does not ever turn a blind eye towards misery or misfortune, suffering, sickness, or sadness. God always sees what's going on. He saw it in those days. He still sees it in your day. He knows what's happening in your life. And there's no circumstance. There's no situation. There's no dire strait. There's no difficulty. There's nothing that could ever happen to you that would keep you or sever you from being the people of God. Did you hear what he said? I have seen the misery of my people. Even though they're between a rock and a hard place, they are still my people. Nothing can separate the people of God from the God of the people. Let me say that again. Nothing can separate the people of God from the God of the people. I'm a Trinitarian. Nothing can separate the people of God from the God of the people. Nothing in the world can sever us. There's nothing that can happen that will rip apart your adoption papers because you, beloved, are part of the people of God if you're in Christ and there is nothing in your life, no misery, no misfortune, no setback, no sickness, nothing can separate you from the love of God. You will always and forever be, according to God, my people. So this is a very gracious statement. I have seen the misery of my people. I have heard their crying out. The prayers of the people that have been offered up literally for hundreds of years did not fall on deaf ears. When you pray, God listens. Once again, that's a testimony to God, not us. But when you pray, God listens. He never turns a deaf ear to what you're going through. He says, I'm concerned about them. Once again, as we learned last week, that's the word concerned, being moved to action. And then God, in a very gracious way, says to Moses, I have come down to rescue them. I am moved at such a degree that I have come down to rescue them. I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians to lead them to the promised land to evict all the ites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Hivites, all the ites, I'm going to evict them and I'm going to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. I remember as a boy, I always thought, that's just gross. A land flowing with milk and honey, that's got to stink. It's got to be sour. Milk flowing all over the place, that's not literal milk and honey. It's a symbol of a land that is bountiful and plentiful and beautiful. A land flowing with milk and honey. God says, I will be very gracious to you and I will do this. And sure enough, every Old Testament writer says, that the greatest act of deliverance in the Old Testament is God's deliverance of the people of Israel from Egyptian captivity. It is God who with a mighty hand and outstretched arm rescued the Israelites. 
They got to the Red Sea with the water in front of them and Pharaoh behind them. They were between a rock and a hard place. And what did God do? He flexed his muscles just a bit and the water parted and they crossed on dry ground. He led them to the desert and through the desert and in the desert, he gave them his very word. No other deity had ever done such a thing where God himself etched in tablets of stone, the very word of God to give to the servant in order to give to the people. And God led them into the promised land, kicked out the original inhabitants and said, this is not your land. This land is for my people, Israel. God is gracious. In fact, every prophet looks back to this mighty act of deliverance and says, this is who our God is. He is gracious. But I got to tell you that the greatest act of deliverance, not only in all the Bible, but in all human history, took place 2,000 years ago when Jesus, the God-man, came to earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for your sins and mine. He was buried in our tomb. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead. This is the greatest act of deliverance that the world has ever seen. In fact, our slave master is greater than the Egyptians. Our slave master is our own sinfulness, our own bondage. And our deliverer is one greater than Moses. It is Jesus himself. And we are delivered not on Mount Sinai, but on Mount Calvary. Because what took place on Mount Calvary delivers us from from all of our sinful uh, captivity. And if the son has set us free, then we are free indeed. And now we are no longer slaves, but we are sons. Now we are no longer captive, but we are free. Now we are no longer guilty, but we are innocent. If the son of God has set you free, my friends, you are free both now and forevermore. Everything is seen through the lens of deliverance. And what Jesus did at Calvary has set us free for eternity. This is so monumental and important that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say that prior to the Calvary experience, Jesus went up on the mountain of transfiguration. He took three of his closest friends, Peter, James, and John. And when they went up on that mountain, I think God just pulled back the curtain just a bit, gave a sneak peek of who Jesus really is. Because his face was transfigured. It was transformed. It was as bright as a flash of lightning. His clothes were as bright as if they had been bleached by the most powerful bleach in all the world. Two visitors showed up, Moses and Elijah, two celestial citizens, two visitors from heaven. They came, Moses embodying the law, Elijah embodying the prophets. For Jesus is the fulfillment of both the law and the prophets. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say that they speak to Jesus about his upcoming departure that will soon take place in Jerusalem. That ancient word for departure is the word exodon. It's exodus. So the scripture tells us that the greatest exodus, the greatest act of deliverance, the greatest mighty majestic move of God is when Jesus went to the cross. Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. The greatest act of deliverance is when God came down and rescued us from our sinful captivity. My Friends, that is grace. 36 years ago, that story became my story. It was April the 15th, 1981, when I knelt beside my bed and I asked Jesus to come into my heart. And in that moment, I realized what the hymn writer said. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. When at the cross, the Savior made me whole. 
He washed my sins away, turned my night to day. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. Do you have a story like that? Do you have a moment like that when you go from no faith to faith? Do you have an experience like that where you say, God, I've called on you, but not because I deserve it, but because you are gracious. I simply call on you just because you're good and just because you are great. And I call on you and I want to have a story just like that. If you don't have a story like that, then today can be your story of deliverance, your story of resurrection, your story of redemption. Because our God is a God who before he tells us where to go, he shows us his grace. Before he tells us where to go, he shows us his grace. Did the Israelites deserve to be delivered? No. Do I deserve to be saved? No. Do you deserve to be saved? No. It's only by the grace of God that you and I are redeemed. That our sin is cast as far as the east is from the west. Oh, my friend, this morning, if you're here and you don't have a story like that, this God, this one who communicates truth couched in story, this can be your story. Because ours is a God who, before he tells you where to go, he displays his grace unto you. I'm sure that Moses must have thought to himself, you know, this is great. I mean, this is some good news. And I'm sure he didn't say it because he did not want to appear to be disrespectful, but he probably thought to himself, you know, it's about time. I'm not going to tell you, God, it's about time, but it's about time. I've been in this desert for 40 years. They've been in Egypt for 430 years. It's about time for you to see and for you to care, for you to respond and for you to come down and rescue them. But God, I've got one pressing question. What in the world does that have to do with me? Because if you're going to come down and rescue them, what does that have to do with me? I'm glad that you're coming. I'm glad that you're going to rescue. I'm glad that you got a mighty arm and an outstretched hand. I'm glad that you're going to rescue. But what in the world does that have to do with me? Here comes the third true statement. Our God will never abandon his children, but always accompany the called. So in verse 10. So now, I'm telling you to go to Pharaoh. Now I'm telling you to go to Pharaoh. I want you to bring my people out of Egypt. And Moses said, who am I? Who, who am I? I, I'm, I? I'm not able. I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I'm not the man for the job. Who am I? Verse 12, I will be with you. This will be a sign to you. That when you go and bring my people Israel out of Egypt, you will come back to this very mountain and you will worship God. The, the you in verse 12, that you will worship God is you plural. What God is saying is y'all are going to worship God. Good Southern fashion, y'all. Y'all going to worship me on this mountain. When you get back to this mountain, and when you begin a worship service on this mountain in Yahweh's yard, when you come to this mountain, it will be a sign and evidence that I will never leave you nor forsake you. One of the greatest promises in all the Bible, beloved, is God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He says that numerous times from Genesis to Revelation. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Moses began to give a laundry list of why he was not the right man for the job. He does this throughout chapter three into chapter four. This is where Moses sounds a lot like me, or I bet he sounds a lot like you. He gives a host of excuses. He begins by saying, God, I'm too old. I'm 80, can't do it. I'm too old. 
I, I, I'm stoved up. I'm just, I'm too old. I can't go. I can't travel. Can't do this. Can't move. I, I can't. I'm too old. Senior adult friends, have you ever tried to tell God that you're too old to do a God-given task that he tells you to do? Because it seems to me that to the ancient of days, who is the ageless God, age is never a problem. He says to young Timothy, don't let anybody look down on you because of your youth. Age is not a problem. Don't let anyone look down on you because of your youth. You're not too young to stand up and be an example in faith and speech and purity and in life. Then he also says to Moses, Moses, you're not too old. You just hit your stride. You're 80 years old and you're just hitting your stride. There may be some 80 year old in the house today and you're just hitting your stride because God has something powerful for you to do. You say, but wait a minute, pastor. Moses lived to be 120, so he's 80. That's about two-thirds. If I lived to be 90, that's a 60-year-old. So why don't you pick on a 60-year-old and not an 80-year-old? Okay, 60-year-olds. Anybody in the house who's about 60 who's trying to coast in to the finish line? Anybody who's about 60 trying to take the foot off the gas pedal and say, you know what? I've been there. I've done that. Don't want to do it again. I got the t-shirt to prove it. I don't need to do anything else for God. I'm just going to coast in to the finish line. Oh, my friends, the ageless God who is eternal says age is never an issue. Age is never a good excuse because if God has called you to it, he will equip you to do it. Moses says, I'm too old. He says, what if I get down there and they make fun of me? This is an 80-year-old man who's worried about peer pressure. What if they make fun of me? What if they laugh at me because I got a stuttering problem? I I can't stand up in front of anybody. I just fumble over my words. I just stutter all the time. I'll stand up in Pharaoh and say, let my people go. I mean, I got a real bad stuttering problem. I can't go down there. What if they laugh at me because I got a stuttering problem? Eventually in chapter four, he just says, God, will you please just send somebody else? You ever done that? God, you got the wrong person for the job. Just please send somebody else. And all the while, God reminds him, I will be with you. Because ours is a God who never abandons his children, but he always accompanies the called. He always accompanies us into whatever he has called us to do. Moses began by asking the wrong question. He asked the question, who am I? Wrong question. He eventually gets to the right question, who are you? That's the right question. When God calls you to do something, don't ever say, who am I? That's that's the wrong question. It really doesn't matter who you are. What really matters is who God is. And eventually Moses gets there and he says, what if I go down there and they say, who sent me to you? What am I supposed to say? Who are you? God says, you tell them I am who I am sent you. Tell them I am sent me to you. I am who I am. A name always communicated essence and character. In the name of God, Yahweh, communicates the supreme sovereign essence and character of God. I am who I am. Meaning, I'm the same God yesterday, today, and forevermore. I do not change like shifting shadows. I am consistent. One preacher said, I I am the perpetual state of isness. I is the God who was, I is the God who is, and I is the God who will be. Bad grammar, great theology. God is saying, listen, I don't change. I'm the same God who always has been. Perpetual state of isness. I don't get antiquated. I don't get out of date. I'm always present. I'm always vibrant. I always is. I'm God. I am who I am. That's what you tell him. In fact, Jesus got in hot trouble, hot waters, when he said, I am. In John's gospel, he says it some seven times. He makes seven I am statements. 
He says things like, I am the good shepherd. I am resurrection and life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. He says all these things. And all the while, he is declaring Yahweh. He is declaring himself to be God. Not another God, a lesser God, a creation of God. He's saying, I am God. Because when you tell God, I'm not able, God says, I am. When you say, I'm not good enough, God says, I am. When you say, I'm not worthy to do what you told me to do, God says, I am. When you try to tell God, I'm not the right person for the job, God says, I am. It's not the right question to say, who am I? The right question is to say, who are you? So my friend, what excuse have you been given to God? God's called you to do something. What is it? And if he's called you to do it, why haven't you done it? What excuse are you given? Abraham said, I'm too old. Isaac was insecure. Leah was just unattractive. Moses was a murderer. David was an adulterer. Rahab was a prostitute. Elijah was suicidal. Jeremiah was depressed. And Jonah was just a downright racist. John the Baptist was too eccentric. Zacchaeus, he was a thief. Peter, he was a hothead. Paul, he had bad health. Timothy, he was too timid. If God can use a bunch of ragtag misfits like that, don't you think he can use a bunch of ragtag misfits like us? I thought I'd get a heartier amen than that. I mean, if God can use those idiots, don't you think he can use us idiots? Amen. Amen. There you go. Because I'm convinced that God never abandons his children, but he always accompanies the called. These are three truth statements. They're couched in story. These three truth statements just simply tell us about who God is and how he interacts with us. This morning, I want to introduce you to Larry and Vanita. Larry and Vanita are missionaries to Venezuela. And many years ago, early in their ministry, they were in a car wreck. The car wreck was tragic. It was severe. Vanita was thrown from the car. She landed awkwardly on her neck, snapped her spinal cord, was permanently paralyzed. The doctors said, she'll never walk again. Never be able to have children. In fact, it's our recommendation that you just retire and return to the States. Years later, Larry and Vanita are still in Venezuela. Now, Vanita, she cannot walk. But she sure can navigate the battery-operated wheelchair. They did not have one child. They had three. They did not retire and return to the States. They stayed right there and worked at that God-given bookstore. And every person that walks in, Larry and Vanita, who speak fluent Spanish, go up and engage them in gospel conversation. One day, somebody asked Larry, Larry, why didn't you just retire and return to the States, and this was his answer. We prayed about it, we really did. And this is what we said to God. God, we're nothing special, but we do love you, and we are available. We are just a couple of ordinary bushes, so set us on fire for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And years later, they give the testimony, that's exactly what God did. 
just took ordinary bushes and set them on fire for God's glory. I don't know about you, but all I am is just a sanctified shrub. That's it. Nothing special. Just a sanctified shrub. And my prayer is like Larry's prayer. And maybe it's your prayer. Lord, I'm not much, not special, but I do love you and I am available. So Lord, take this ordinary bush and set me on fire for your glory. The only thing good in me is the only thing that's good in you. And that's the fire that will not go out. It's a burning bush. It's a fire that would not burn up, will not burn out. Friend, if you get burnt out, it's simply because that fire is not of God, it's of you or somebody else. Because God's fire is a consuming fire. It never burns up and it never burns out. In fact, God says in Ezekiel or in Exodus chapter four and Hebrews chapter 12, I am a consuming fire. He says in Exodus chapter 13, I am the pillar of fire by night that leads my children. He says in first Kings chapters 18 and 19, I am the fire that's called down on Mount Carmel by Elijah himself. And in uh, Jeremiah chapter 20, the Lord says, I am the fire that shut up in my bones and woe to me if I don't speak. In Acts chapter 2, it's the fire that separates and rests on all believers for all time, for all tasks. What I'm telling you is that when God gets in you, he will consume you. He will consume your life and his fire will never go out. I don't know about you, but I'm just an ordinary bush and I pray unto the Lord, Lord, set me ablaze for your glory. Set me ablaze for your glory. The great prince of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, was one day asked, why do people come and hear you preach? And that great preacher of yesteryear said, the only thing I conclude is this, that all week long, God sets me ablaze and people just come and watch me burn. It's a fire that will not go out. We're just some ordinary bushes, aren't we? I wonder, what could God do with a room full of ordinary bushes? What could God do with a house full of sanctified shrubs? I bet he could turn the world upside down. Lord, we may not be much, but we do love you. And we are available. We're just some ordinary bushes. So set our lives ablaze for your glory. Heavenly Father, we bow before you and that is our prayer. So Father, we pray that if somebody is here and that story is not their story, that today will be the day of their salvation. Oh Father, we pray that for somebody here who needs to join your church, if there's somebody here who needs to respond in faith, help them to do that today. And Father, we pray that you will set our lives on fire, be a consuming fire in our lives, both now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen.